Hello, and welcome to the turbulent world of Middle East soccer, or Mid-East soccer podcast. I'm your host, James Dorsey. If there is one theme beyond corruption and a host of economic and social grievances that have driven protests, large and small, local, sectoral, and national across the globe, it has been a call for dignity. Reflecting a global breakdown in confidence in political systems and leadership, the quest for dignity and social justice links protests in Middle Eastern and North African countries like Lebanon, Iraq, Jordan, Egypt, Algeria, and Sudan to demonstrations in nations on multiple continents, ranging from Chile, Bolivia, Ecuador, Venezuela, and Haiti to France, Zimbabwe, Indonesia, Pakistan, and Hong Kong. The global protests amount to the latest phase in an era of defiance and dissent that erupted in 2011 and unfolded most dramatically in the Middle East and North Africa with the toppling of the autocratic leaders of Tunisia, Egypt, Libya, and Yemen. Of the four Arab nations, Only Tunisia has produced a relatively successful transition from autocracy to a more democratic form of government. Regional and domestic counter-revolutionary forces staged a military coup in 2013 to remove Egypt's first and only democratically elected president from office, installing one of the country's most brutal and repressive regimes in its post-independence history. Libya and Yemen are racked by civil wars, fueled by foreign intervention. Syria has been devastated by an almost nine-year-long civil war between forces supported by outside powers that were determined at whatever cost to decide the fate of the country's own popular revolt. Like elsewhere in the region, Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan used the 2013 Gezi Park protests, the largest anti-government demonstrations in the decade of his party's rule, as well as a failed military coup in 2016, to reverse Turkish strides towards democracy and political pluralism. The Middle East and North Africa's retreat into more repressive authoritarianism and autocracy, coupled with a crackdown of various sorts in Russia, China, Hong Kong, and Kazakhstan, to name just a few examples, has prompted analysts to wonder whether mass protest remains an effective way of achieving political change. Only 20 years ago, 70% of protests demanding systemic political change got it, a figure that has been growing steadily since the 1950s. In the mid-2000s, that trend suddenly reversed. Worldwide, protesters' success rate has since plummeted to only 30%, concluded New York Times journalists Max Fisher and Amanda Taub in a column exploring the roots of the current wave of discontent. Mr. Fisher and Mrs. Taub base their conclusion on a study by political scientist Erika Chenoweth that suggests that illiberals, authoritarians, and autocrats have become more adept 
a thwarting protest using what she terms smart repression. Yet smart repression that involves, in Mrs. Chenoweth's definitions, efforts to ensure the loyalty of elites, greater brutality and violence by security forces and paramilitary proxies, enhanced censorship and criminalization of dissent, and depicting revolts as foreign-inspired conspiracies and forms of terrorism is at best an upgraded version of standard authoritarian and autocratic responses. It's hard to describe what is smart or more sophisticated about the repression involved in the military coup in Egypt and its immediate aftermath, in which more than 1,000 people were killed the arbitrary detentions of prominent businessmen, members of the ruling family, religious figures, and activists in what amounted to a power grab by Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, the mass detention of an estimated one million Turkic Muslims in re-education camps in China's troubled northwestern province of Xinjiang, or the arrests of tens of thousands in countries like Turkey and Egypt. What may provide a better explanation of the reduced effectiveness of protest may be the fact that for the first time since World War II, the number of countries moving towards authoritarianism exceeds the number moving towards democracy, as a result of what political scientists Anna Luhrmann and Stefan Lindberg have dubbed a third wave of autocratization. Underlying that wave is the rise of a critical mass of world leaders that share a belief in illiberal, authoritarian, and autocratic principles of governance and disregard human and minority rights in favor of a supremacist endorsement of the rights of an ethnic or religious group. The rise of those leaders is in many ways the flip side of the protests. They often are political outsiders, men who may or may not be part of the elite, like Donald Trump in the United States, Viktor Orban in Hungary, Narendra Modi in India, Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil, and Rodrigo Duterte in the Philippines, but project themselves as forces of change that will tackle the elite's grip on power. Aspects of their civilizationalism and reactionary nationalism has empowered and is supported to varying degrees by often opposed political forces that include far-right, anti-migrant, and supremacist ethnic and religious groups, as well as popular leftists, including some of the Democratic Party presidential candidates in the United States. The result is a potentially vicious circle in which civilizational attitudes, increasingly restricted democratic rights, and greater repression marginalize ever more societal groups, including significant segments of the middle class, as well as minorities, who, like in the case of Hong Kong, Iraq, Sudan, or the Rohingya, see their resilience hardened by perceptions of having nothing more to lose. Violence on all sides of the divide increases, with the risk of militants having a greater appeal. The conclusions 
of Mrs. Chenoweth, Mrs. Lurman, and Mr. Lindbergh would bear that out if protest is people's only peaceful alternative in response to unresponsive governments and political forces, undermining the protest's effectiveness narrows the choices to effect change. From that perspective, the scholars' conclusions would amount to a contemporary adaptation of writer George Orwell's 1944 assertion that all revolutions are failures, but that are not all the same failure. However, that may be prematurely jumping to conclusions, despite what they project as a trend. To be sure, the jury is still out on whether the revolts in Tunisia and Sudan will produce enduring political transition. But eight years on from the Arab revolts in 2011, protesters determined to secure recognition and their place in society underline lessons learnt by no longer declaring victory once a leader is forced to make concessions or resign as in Algeria and Sudan and transcending easily exploitable sectarian ethnic and religious divides like in Iraq and Lebanon, a mosaic of 18 carefully balanced sectarian groups. Said Middle East scholar Hanin Radar, for the first time in a long time, Lebanese have realized that the enemy is within. It is their own government and political leaders, not an outside occupier or religious or regional influencer. Political leaders have been unable to control the course of the protests, which are taking place across all sects and across all regions. What brought them together is an ongoing economic crisis that has hurt people from all sects and regions. The realization that street power needs to be sustained until the modalities of transition are in place is key to enhancing the chances of protest retaining its effectiveness. The future of protest as an effective tool depends similarly on perceptions of a common interest that transcends sect, ethnicity, and class and becomes part of the fabric of society. Thank you for joining me today. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. A written version of this podcast is on my blog, The Turbulent World of Middle East Soccer, at mideastsoccer.blogspot.com. Please join me for my next podcast in the coming days. All the best and take care.